You know, we were in staff meeting last week, and one of our staff members said, I'm so excited for the next two weeks. It's kind of like the Pro Bowl and the Super Bowl of Christianity. And I said, man, the Pro Bowl stinks. Does that mean the 13th is going to be like terrible and the 20th is going to be great? And he's like, okay, maybe like the All-Star game and Super Bowl Sunday. So I hope today's more like an All-Star game than a Pro Bowl. I cannot wait for next Sunday, Easter Sunday, and I can't believe that Easter Sunday is already upon us. Uh, As excited as I am for Easter, I'm really excited for the week after Easter because for 18 months, I've been working on a sermon series that I'm calling Practical Jesus because there's so much great truth in Scripture and so often we come to church and we learn the Bible and we learn spiritual things and they're wonderful and we should learn them. But the everyday truth of Scripture, like just what Jesus says about the little stuff, sometimes I think we miss. So I've been putting together a a series that we're going to start the week after Easter called Practical Jesus, basically everyday advice from the world's greatest teacher. And starting the Sunday after Easter, we're going to look at things like how to deal with relational conflict. What does Jesus say about all that conflict that happens in life? How to manage a cluttered life. Jesus was one of the busiest people maybe that ever existed on planet earth. And we can learn from his life how to to manage when things get a little bit cluttered. How to make a difference every day in your life. Jesus, that's one thing he was really good at teaching his disciples. How you can make a difference in your life. How to feel close to God. Jesus was continually talking to people that wanted to feel closer to God than they were. And he gave some really just basic information on that, and then how to find quality friends. When I look at these five things, I look at the things that when I talk to people in church and I say, how are things going spiritually? Normally the conversation comes back to these things, relationships, um, managing their life and trying to grow spiritually at the same time, wanting to make a difference and trying to figure out how to do that, trying to figure out how to feel close to God when life so often leaves you feeling empty and how to find quality friends that you can live life with. So I'm excited for Easter. I can't wait for next Sunday. But the Sunday after Easter, we kick off maybe the most practical um, yet most important series we've ever done. So make sure you plan to be here after Easter as well. Today we're in Matthew chapter 27 in week five of this series that we're calling The Veil. Our ushers are going to come down the aisle right now. If you don't have a Bible, they've got one that you can use. They've actually got one that you can have. We've given away more than 700 Bibles since our church began just like this. And every Sunday we're going to open the Bible and we're going to kind of flip through it and read it. So if you want a paper copy in your hands so you can look at what I'm looking at, just wave at the ushers. They'll give you one. If you don't have a Bible or you don't know where yours is, put your name in this one and keep it. Take it home. It's yours. Start reading it. If you just need one for today and and you got one at home, you can lay it on the table when you leave. But in Matthew chapter 27, we've been studying the last five weeks, a series that we're calling The Veil. And we're going to narrow in on two verses today, Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 and 51. And if you do not yet have these verses underlined in your Bible or highlighted in your Bible or circled in your Bible, or you've not made note of them yet on your sermon notes, I need to make sure you do that today. And make sure you open your bulletin today. Our our bulletin notes are connected, so they're actually perforated, so you can kind of tear it in two so you can keep your notes and throw the rest away after you've got all that you need on there. But today we want to look at maybe the most significant spiritual event in the history of Scripture, certainly the most significant spiritual event up to this time when Jesus died. And at the moment Jesus died, according to Scripture, access was given to humanity to be close to God again. And here's what Matthew 27, 50 and 51 says. When Jesus had cried out, he's on the cross now, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, He gave up his spirit. 
at that moment. I want you to say at that moment. The very first thing that happened after Jesus died is getting ready to be told to us. What was the very first thing that happened after Jesus died? Here it is, simultaneous to him giving up his spirit. Here's what God does on planet earth. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. In the New King James Version, a little more traditional reading, it says, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, without understanding what the temple is, and without understanding what the veil is, you really don't realize the significance of this moment. But if you've been here the last five weeks, or you've been watching online, or you've been podcasting when you're not here, what we've realized in this series, the key to the whole series is this, Jesus' death on the cross gives us access to God. And spiritually understanding that access to God is transformational in our lives. Now, a lot of times we can teach for information, which means you can be learning mentally what I'm teaching you. You go pass a test, you go teach it to somebody else. But when you listen with your heart and when you listen with your soul, when you begin to apply the truth that's given to you spiritually so you understand what it means to you, it goes from being informational to transformational, which means begins to change you from the inside out. Now, we have learned about this transformation by looking at how God said to approach him. For 1,500 years, when someone wanted to talk to God, for 1,500 years, when someone wanted to be close to God, for 1,500 years, when someone wanted to be forgiven by God, they had to come the exact same way to approach their access to God. And it was through first the Old Testament tabernacle that Moses built, and then later through the Old Testament temple that Solomon built, which was a permanent fixture of the tabernacle. Now, our ushers have some of these. If you don't have this little graphic we've been giving out for the last five weeks, I've asked you to keep it every week. Raise your hand. I want one of these in your hands because this is a significant piece of spiritual learning for you today. So if you don't have one, I want you to have one of these so that you can understand what we're learning. Because as we go through the tabernacle of Moses and the temple of Solomon, here's what we realize spiritually for the last 3,500 years. Most people in Scripture wanted to be close to God. I believe most people who are here today would like to feel close to God. Most of us just don't know how. Like, we don't know what steps to take to make sure we can feel close to God. And the tabernacle tent in Solomon's temple teaches how to do that when we understand what was inside the temple and how it worked. And what we've done the last five weeks is we've been studying key areas of spiritual significance and understanding in the tabernacle and temple and how they applied our life spiritually. We looked the first week at the basins. And if you'll see in Solomon's temple, this what looks like a big swimming pool where the priest could bathe completely and all these little what look like sinks. This is where the priest would clean their hands after the sacrifice. And we said it shows us that Jesus, even though Jesus has sacrificed his life for us, he wants us to clean some of the garbage out of our life before we approach God. And the priest was never allowed to go dirty in to see God. So it teaches us spiritual cleansing is important. We talked a few weeks ago about the lampstand that you can see both in the tabernacle tent and you can see very vaguely in Solomon's temple. It's called the menorah for those of you who are maybe familiar with Jewish culture a little bit. And it was this lampstand that allowed the priest to see how to come close to God inside. And we said that Jesus declared himself in John eight twelve. He said, I am the light of the world. He was basically saying, if you know me, you know how to get to God. We talked last week about the table of showbread. And we said the priest was reminded every time he looked at that little table of showbread, which we can see in the tabernacle tent, that God would always provide food for him. They could trust God. 
They were reminded to have a relationship with God because every Sabbath they would eat that bread and they'd replace it once a week. So they were reminded that God wanted to hang out and have a relationship with them. And then they were reminded that they were supposed to serve God. The table of showbread helped them become partakers because it had on it the utensils for the drink offering, which was an offering added to a great sacrifice. And we saw that the priest basically said, Jesus will one day be the great sacrifice but we can add our life to what Jesus has done and we can have an impact in ministry as well. Today we'll talk about the altar of incense. Next week we'll talk about the veil and we're gonna talk about how on Easter Sunday how access to God, if we choose to accept it, creates action from God in our life that changes us forever. But today we're gonna focus on the altar of incense. And the altar of incense teaches us, as I have studied this now for the last month, I believe the main lesson of the altar of incense is that God wants us to live in a spiritual state of mind. God wants us to continually live thinking about, focusing on, living within a spiritual state of mind, understanding how God has created us and how we can have access and opportunity to God. Now, in Exodus chapter 30, we're introduced for the first time to this altar of incense. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Exodus 30, and then we're going to hang out in Exodus chapter 30. I think around there, the rest of this message, you go ahead and turn back there and then maybe put your pen in your Bible there, stick your finger in your Bible, or if you have a Bible that lays open, just lay it open on your lap or put it on the chair next to you. Because we're introduced to this altar of incense and its significance and its role in the temple, and we're shown the significance and the role that it can have in our life in helping us live in a spiritual state of mind every day. In Exodus chapter 30, starting in verse 1, we'll go through verse 8. Pretty simple little tool that was made to worship God. God told Moses, make an altar of acacia wood for burning incense. It's to be square, a cubit long, cubit wide, two cubits high. Its horns of one piece are to be with it. Overlay the top and all the sides and the horns with pure gold and make a gold molding around it. Make two gold rings for the altar below the molding, two on each of the opposite sides to hold the poles used to carry it. And make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Put the altar in front of the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant Law before the atonement cover that's over the tablets of the Covenant Law where I will meet with you. Aaron, he was the high priest, that's Moses' older brother, must burn fragrant incense on the altar every morning when he tends to the lamps. And he must burn incense again when he lights the lamp at twilight so that the incense will burn regularly before the Lord for the generations to come. Now let me give you some Bible 101 facts on the altar of incense on your sermon notes. First, we know that the altar of incense was the closest item in the tabernacle and the temple to the Holy of Holies, which was the presence of God. So you could not get, for 1,500 years, you could not get closer to God than the altar of incense. And what happened at the altar of incense was what allowed you to feel intimately close to the presence of God. The priest, we know from what we just read, had to burn incense on the altar twice daily. So twice a day, in the morning and the evening, the priest would start his day standing next to the presence of God, and the priest would end his day standing next to the presence of God. It's for those of us who wake up and pray and go to bed while praying, that's the thought that the priest, the first thing on his mind was being close to God. The last thing on his mind was being close to God. And you can see how this altar of incense creates a spiritual state of mind that we're always thinking about how to try to be close to God. Now, any priest could burn incense on the altar. This wasn't just for the high priest. Only the high priest could go into that Holy of Holies, which we'll talk about next week. 
But any priest could burn incense at the altar, and usually the priests were chosen by lot. They were like on a schedule of when to do this. As a matter of fact, for those of you who know a little bit of the New Testament, in Luke chapter 1, verse 10, there was a priest named Zechariah. He was a Levite. And it was his turn to go in and offer the sacrifice at the, at the altar of incense. And while he was in there lighting the altar of incense, probably at the evening sacrifice, an angel came and appeared to him and said, Hey, Zachariah, I know you're old. I know your wife, Elizabeth, is old, but you all are going to have a baby. When you have a baby naming John, he became known in Scripture as John the Baptist. He was Jesus' cousin who was six months older than Jesus, and he would introduce Jesus to the world. All of that happened at the altar of incense standing right before the presence of God. So this would have, this would have been a big-time vision to hear from God because you could not get any closer to God than Zechariah would have been. But here's what really has drawn me deep into the truth of the altar of incense. Only a specific type of incense could be used. And when I realized that, and I began to ask questions, because I, I don't know about you, but I, when I read the Bible, it's a dialogue not a monologue. It's not just me reading a book. I, like, I am, I am in the text, and I will talk to the If I read a good point in the Bible, I'm like, that's right. If I read a confusing point in the Bible, I'm like, that makes no sense. And when I was reading about the altar of incense, I came across a section in the Bible that led me to ask a question. I didn't just read it for information, but I read it, and I thought, well, how does that work? And the answer to that question, how does that work, has really shaped the entire truth of this message because by answering that question, God, how how this happened, I realized the spiritual truth that God wants us to understand from the altar of incense. At Exodus chapter 30, if you go to the very end of the chapter, so the, the chapter starts with the altar of incense and then it shows us some other things that are supposed to be made. But then in Exodus 30, verses 34 through 38, God said, oh, by the way, here's what the incense is supposed to be like. So I'm reading this this week, and here's what I read. Then the Lord said to Moses, take fragrant spices, gum resin, onica, galbanum, and pure frankincense, all in equal amounts, and make a fragrant blend of incense, the work of a perfumer. It's to be salted and pure and sacred. Grind some of it to powder and place it in front of the Ark of the Covenant Law in the tent of meeting, where I will meet with you, and it shall be most holy to you. Don't make any incense with this formula for yourselves. Consider this one holy to the Lord. Whoever makes incense like it to enjoy its fragrance must be cut off from his people. So I'm reading that section of Scripture. And, I, and I'm, as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, Lord, how in, the world, how in the world are the people supposed to do this? At the time God spoke this to Moses, where was he? Anybody know? He was in the desert. He's in the desert with about 2 million slaves, and they had been in the desert now for about 90 days. They lived in the desert. And God says, now you're going to make this incense, but it's got to be very specific. It's got to be gum resin and anica and frankincense and this. And I'm thinking, Lord, like, where are they going to get that stuff? Like, I know this doesn't grow under rocks. And I know they, you know, they can't hop on the internet and order it off Amazon.com. Like, like how are, how, this is very specific detail how do you expect the people to follow these things as detailed as you expect them to? Where would they get this stuff from? And by tracing back that answer, I feel like God revealed some incredible things to me about the truth, the spiritual lessons of the altar of incense, and how this message isn't just about a little box that, that they would light so that it would create a sweet smell, although that's a part of it. But the lesson of the altar of incense is much more about how God provides everything that we need in order to be close to him 
if we'll just stop and see the people and the things and the abilities that he's placed in our life. So that's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to give you some spiritual truth as it relates to the altar of incense, and then I want to talk to you about how that relates to our mindset and what we can do with this truth. So what are the spiritual lessons of the altar of incense? More importantly, how do they help us draw closer to God? Because our goal today is not to learn something, but to become something. Our goal today is to become a little closer to God today than we were yesterday. Our goal next week will be to go just a little further, and then every Sunday for the rest of our life to get a little closer to God until one day we're with him in eternity. That, that's my goal every Sunday as I come and teach. So what's some spiritual truth about the altar of incense as I begin to study about this special fragrance that God wanted created for him? Why was incense needed? The, as, I, as I answered that question, here's the first spiritual truth that I learned about me. God loves me. God loves you. God loves us despite the garbage in our lives. And this is a pretty important point spiritually. Because as I began to look at the incense, and then I began to try to figure out where they got the stuff to make the incense, I had the very natural question, because I, I ask a lot of questions. Well, God, why, you know, why was this needed? Why did we need incense all the time? And here's what I learned as I began to study Scripture. The incense was given to the priest to cover the smell of death from the courtyard sacrifices that were offered every day, multiple times a day. If you look at Solomon's temple in this little handout that I gave to you, in Solomon's temple you can see this huge altar. There was nearly at all times a dead animal burning on that offering that was on that altar that was an offering to God. Anyone who had a child would come offer a burnt offering to God. In the morning and in the evening, they would offer a burnt offering to God. And the stench of death had to be tremendous in the tabernacle, in the desert, in the Middle East, when it's 100 degrees every day. And the reason that the first reason God gave the Israelites incense is he said, listen, when you get close to me, I don't want you thinking about death smelling like death when you approach me. And I don't know if you've ever been really close to, this, to the smell of multiple animals um, like dead at the same time. But I had a unique experience to do that once. And it was one of the most disturbing and memorable experiences of my life at the same time. After my senior year of high school, between my senior year of high school and my freshman year of college, in the summer of my freshman year of college, um, I worked road construction for the county that I lived in, Ross County, um, Ohio. And they, they had a bunch of union workers and they would hire college kids during the summer. And uh, man, we would pave roads and we would fix potholes and we would put up guardrail and we would paint roads and we would be the flagmen as, you know, they were doing construction. I mean, we just, any type of road construction you can imagine, I did that for two years. But every now and then we'd get washed out. And we get, when we would get washed out, all the union guys would go downstairs and they would play cards in the break room and they would send all the college interns out on roadkill duty because part of, part of the role of the county was if an animal was killed, a large animal on a county road that couldn't be removed, we'd have to go and get it. So I'll never forget the first time we got the call and me and my buddy Rod who went to a neighboring school, we got the call, hey, an animal's been killed on this road, go pick it up. Um, and our boss said, take it to, there was like a, kind of a, basically an, an animal crematorium for large animals, that like people who had lost horses and cows, like large animals that had died, this is where they got rid of them. I didn't know such places existed. They do. You'd probably rather not go there if you don't have to. So we, we go, and there's a dead deer laying in the ditch, kind of in this guy's front yard. And I'm not sure it had, how long it had been there. 
But it had been there long enough in the summer heat that it, you know, it was swollen up like a basketball. Like you looked at, like if you, if you popped it with a pin, it would just explode everywhere. It was covered in maggots. I mean, one of the most disgusting things you could ever imagine. And it was, it, it had kind of atrophied, so it was totally stiff. So like we, you know, we looked at it and we're like, what are we going to do? And we're like, well, man, we got we to gotta get these maggots off. So we took shovels and knocked all the maggots off. And then we decided that we were going to pick it up and put it in a truck. And I got the back legs and kind of got myself up in the bed of the truck and lifted it up. And Rod had kind of up underneath its, its legs, he was holding on to kind of its shoulders in the truck. And we got it and we slammed it in the bed of the truck. And I'll never forget, I was standing here when we slammed it, the deer's head kind of went backwards and like blood from its mouth just went all over Rod, like all over the front. I was like, oh no. Um, so we got this and we take it and we find the animal incineration place and we pull in and there's just dead animals everywhere, like large dead animals everywhere. They had a crane that they would take to pick these animals up and move it to the incinerator and drop them in. And there was a massive steer that was hanging up by its back legs, like 10 feet in the ground suspended. And like, it smelled so bad, you, would all, you almost vomited driving in. And we're like, man, we got to get this deer out of here and, and go. We're like, where do we go? So you know, we start looking around, we're like, is anyone here? And we drove across a little thing that dinged. And out walks this guy in these coveralls that are just covered in God knows what. And he's eating a sandwich, right? Like he walks out and he's like, hey. And he's like, just, just throw it over there. And we threw it over there and left. And I thought, man, I'm like, Lord, I never want to go back to that place. We sometimes sanitize scripture to think that that's not what the tabernacle and temple courtyard was like. But when we read about in the days of Solomon that they offered a thousand sacrifices in a day, I mean, this would have been a a difficult experience. This wasn't like meat on the grill where this smells good in your backyard. This would have been the smell of death. And God said, as you draw close to me, I want to make sure that you don't draw close to me with the spirit, with, with with the smell of death in your life. But here's the reality of the situation as we read through Scripture The Bible says that the spiritual condition of our lives when Jesus met us, it stunk. The spiritual condition of our life when Jesus met us was death. And God approached us in our worst possible spiritual state and said, although you need a lot of cleaning up, I think I can help you with that. In Romans 5, 8, the Bible says God demonstrates, he shows us his love in this while we were still sinners while we still had the stench of spiritual death and the stench of, sp- the stench of spiritual garbage in our life, while we, while we didn't have our junk together, Jesus loved us enough to die for us. And a lot of times, I read a tweet this week from one of my favorite pastors that said, most of us were taught that God would love us if and when we changed. But he said, the reality is that God loves us so we can change. And when we look at the altar of incense, we realize that the smell of death had to be overcome as we move towards the presence of God, and the altar of incense allowed that to happen. One of the keys to what I call the gospel life, if you're taking notes, the gospel life is a life that that is really focused and centered on living for Jesus. One of the keys to the gospel life is embracing this truth that without Jesus, our life stinks spiritually, and we've got no hope. Because if we embrace that, it draws us to Jesus because of the gratitude that we'll have for him. Despite the spiritual garbage, despite the spiritual death, God chose to get close to us, but he wanted to make sure as he got close to us that that the aroma of our lives spiritually were changing to be sweet. Now, back to the question that I ask to kind of kick off this message. Well, how in the world 
were the people going to get this stuff? They couldn't go to the store and buy it. They couldn't go back to Egypt and get it. So I asked a simple question, God, how did this happen? And as I looked in Scripture, I realized the second truth that God gives us, that God always provides us what we need to know him and to be close to him. God always provides us with what we need to know him and to be close to him. God never asks us to do anything that's impossible to do spiritually. In Exodus chapter 12, the answer to my question is given to us because as the Israelites leave their slavery in Egypt, we see that the Egyptians gifted to them everything they would need to make the tabernacle, to make the utensils, to make the fragrances, to make the perfumes. God allowed the people to have it, so by the time he asked for it, it was there for him. In Exodus 12, 35 and 36, it says, The Israelites did as Moses instructed, and he asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. Why would God do this? Because God knew what he was going to ask of them spiritually, and he knew if they had the ability to do it, they would. I don't want to say that God trusts people, but here's what I believe. Truth number three, I believe that God knows the potential that people's lives have spiritually. And I believe God knows that if he equips us and gives us the right things, that when he turns around and change our hearts, changes our hearts and says, I need some of what you have, that people will respond when our hearts are right and our possessions are available to him, we see that God uses us in a wonderful way. And this is how the altar of incense came about. God found some people whose hearts were right and whose possessions and talents were available, and God says, I want to use you. Again, I'm reading through this text, and I come to a line that makes me stop and ask a question. In Exodus 30, 35, God says about the incense, make a fragrant blend of incense, the work of a perfumer. And I thought, where in the world are you going to find a perfumer? And then I started studying scripture and I realized that the Egyptian people were some of the cleanest people in the history of planet earth. They shaved all the hair on their body. They cleansed religiously. Even when when they would bury a king. I mean, the king's tombs that have been uncovered, it is just the most sterling, clean thing you would have ever had. And the Egyptians had mastered the art of smelling good. And who made all the articles that made them smell good, look good, feel good? It was their Israelite slaves. So there's no way some Israelite slave ever thought that what I have learned to do, this little job I have mixing spices to make King Tut smell good, one day God is going to use. But they didn't realize what they had been trained to do their entire lives, even as slaves, God would use if they would make their abilities available to him. And what's more than that, God not only asked for the work of a perfumer, God actually told Moses, you have one, and here's his name. This text in Exodus 31 is most, one of the most encouraging texts in the Bible to me because God mentions two people who, in our eyes, would be nobodies spiritually. These people weren't preachers. They weren't worship leaders. They weren't small group leaders. They weren't Sunday school teachers. They weren't children's workers. They probably weren't major givers. These, these were the blue-collar tradesmen in Israel. And God said, you have some people who have some very specific skills who I know who they are, I know their name, I know what they're good at, and I want to use them. Exodus 31 shows me that there's not one person in this room that's unimportant spiritually or useless spiritually to God. Because if we look at Exodus 31, 1 through 11, here's what it says. The Lord said to Moses, see, I have chosen Bezalel, 
son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I want you to think about how intimately God knows you. God said, I want this guy. Here's who his dad is. Here's who his granddad is. And here's where he's from. Like God knows you better than you know yourself. Why? I have filled him with the spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, to engage in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I have appointed a Holiab, son of Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. And I've given him ability to all the skilled workers to make everything that I've commanded you, the tent of the meeting, the Ark of the Covenant law with the atonement cover on it, all the other furnishings of the tent, the table, its articles, the pure gold lampstands, all its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and its utensils, the basin with its stand, the woven garments, the sacred garments for Aaron and the priest and the garments for his sons when they serve the priest and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. They can make them for you just as I commanded you. These people had no idea that the thing they knew how to do best that nobody even really probably cared about God knew intimately and he was going to use for his glory. And here's the reality of today. Not everyone in this room knows everyone. And there are some of you that there's not one person in this room that knows you. They don't know who you are. They don't know who your dad is. They don't know who your granddad is. They don't know where you're from. They don't know what you're good at. They don't know what you've been trained to do. But God does. He knows you intimately. And God's saying for the school teachers and for the coaches and for the carpenters, and for the plumbers, and for the builders, and and for the mathematicians, and for the scientists, and for the doctors, and for the engineers, and for the lawyers, and for that little kid who likes to do sidewalk, chalk art. There is something special that you do, and I want to use that for my glory and for the good of people. And when we read this, we read there's not one unimportant or useless person in our church, but sometimes it's hard for us to grasp that truth that we're both important and useful to God. I got an email from a young girl in our church just this week, and here's the email that came to me. Pastor Christian, I have a question, and it's probably a stupid question, but it's something I don't really understand, and I wonder about it sometimes. And the question is, how can God love me? Me, out of all the people in the world who are better than me, why does God love me? I think if we were to be as honest as this high school student, A lot of times we would sit and we'd walk out of church and think, you know, that message was for somebody, but not me. Man, I'm not good enough. I'm not good at anything. I have nothing to offer the church. You know, no one in the church knows me. If they knew my history, guess what? God does know your history. Knows your family. He knows your background. He knows what you're good at, and he wants to use you spiritually. You know, we've got a young man in our church named Reese Harder. Uh, A lot of you may not know Reese personally, but he is, if you've ever driven into the early service, and seen the parking guy out front doing cartwheels and split jumps and back handsprings, that's Reese. Reese came to our church, got radically saved, became a Christian. And he told me when I first heard that they were doing crazy stuff out there, I said, Reese, what are you doing? He said, I just want to make people smile before they come into church. That's my goal. We found out when Reese started coming to our church that his mother has multiple sclerosis, uh, a bad case of it, and she's basically homebound. And we started praying for Reese, and we started thinking about his mom and praying for her. And somewhere in the course of time, Reese's mom, Diane Harder, started watching our services from her home um, every week. She would get on the Internet. And, Diane, I want to say that Reese has told me you're watching, and we're praying for you. 
and I'm so excited that you're a part of our church from your home. But Reese came to me two weeks ago, and he said, Christian, you're never going to believe this. My mom from home has started watching you on the Internet. She heard you say in one of your sermons that you need to invite people to church on Easter. So she emailed all the friends that she knows and said, this is my church. If you, if you can go, you need to go there Easter Sunday. And for those of you who can't leave your house like me, why don't you watch on the Internet with me, and we'll have church together Easter Sunday. Now, there's somebody who has said, you know what? I'm important spiritually, and I'm useful spiritually, and I may not be able to leave my house, but I can have impact for God. When Reese told me that, I thought, man, how many people in our church who God has given the health to get up and walk out of their house have walked across the street, have walked to church, have picked up a phone, have had coffee or lunch with someone to invite them to church? How many of us who God is blessed to be completely healthy think, you know what, I'm not important, I'm not useful, I can't do anything to God, when Diane Harder from her home is saying, I'm going to figure out a way for God to use me. And she's making a difference just through watching on the internet in, in her home. You know, I read this text and I see God saying, there's not an unimportant person, there's not a useless person, everyone can be used. And what I see is that the truth of the gospel, that you're loved and that you're useful is beginning to sink into our church. But people are saying, how does that work and how does that work consistently? And that's where our spiritual mindset has to change. Our spiritual mindset and our relationship towards God and our spiritual mindset and our relationship towards others and how we live our life daily. Our spiritual mindset has to become, as we study the altar of incense, that because I'm loved by God, I really want to cover up the garbage in my life. There was no priest who would ever leave the courtyard smelling like blood and death and approach God because they're thinking, because God has given access to me, I want to do this the way that God said it. So I'm going to offer the sacrifice, I'm going to stop by the basins, and I'm going to wash off the filth, and then I'm going to go in and I'm going to make sure the candles are lit so I can see where I'm going, and I'm going to make sure the table of showbread's there that reminds me God's going to take care of me, and only then will I approach God after I've really cleaned up everything and gotten my life ready. And a lot of us want Jesus' sacrifice, we want Jesus' cleansing, but we're not really concerned with getting the garbage out of our life, or we don't know how to get the garbage out of our life, or we think we're just stuck with it because we were born with it and we can't change. However, when we study through Scripture, we read an interesting word in Exodus 30, 34 that I think triggers a lot of our minds spiritually. It says, the Lord said to Moses, take fragrant spices gum resin, anica, and galbanum, and pure frankincense, all in equal amounts. Now, of those things that God told Moses to make the altar of incense fragrance from, have you ever heard of any of them biblically? Yes or no? Which one? Frankincense. Where do we hear frankincense? It was a gift given to Jesus when he was born by the wise men. It was one of three gifts, actually. One gift was gold, which means these wise men understood in Jewish tradition that Jesus would be some kind of king of the Jews. That title eventually got him crucified by Rome, who thought maybe he was trying to compete with them. They gave him myrrh, which means they understood, according to the Old Testament Jewish scriptures, that the Jewish Messiah would come to die and to suffer. So they gave him a burial spice, but then they gave him frankincense. Because they had read that the Old Testament said that someone who would bring people close to God would have to make their life 
a fragrant offering before God. So we see in the life of Jesus and his sacrifice that Jesus' sacrifice in his life allows our lives to be pleasing in the sight of God. Which is why the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15, focusing on all that Old Testament biblical truth, said, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And through us, diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. There was one distinct smell in the Old Testament. The only place that was allowed to smell like this in the world was the very border of the presence of God. And the Apostle Paul said, Jesus has made our lives unique in all the world, in that when people get around us, they know what it feels like to be in the presence of God. And it's the only place in the world that feels like the presence of God, the life of a Christian who Jesus has changed. And when we learn this, we look at the fragrance and we look at the incense, we look at what the priest was reminded of, we learn, number two, that our spiritual mindset has to be to live with what I call a continual drift towards God. And I want to show you the symbolism that the priest thought of and that the Israelites always looked towards in their Old Testament sacrifices. In Exodus 37 and 8, it said, Aaron must burn fragrant incense on the altar every morning when he tends the lamps. And he must burn incense again when he lights the lamps at twilight. So incense will burn regularly before the Lord for generations to come. You know, we think about having this mindset, always thinking about God, and we ask the question, is it even really possible to wake up and go to sleep with the same focus? Well, let me ask you this question. If you've ever been worried about anything, the answer to that question is yes. It's possible to go to bed worried about something and to wake up thinking about that exact same thing. So we know it's possible to train our minds to focus on the same thing, the first thing every day and the last thing every day. And as a matter of fact, the psalmist said in Psalm 55, evening and morning and at noon, I'll pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. The key thought for the priest walking into the room that helped them understand that they wanted their thoughts and their mind and their heart and their focus continually drifting up is every time they entered the the tabernacle, they would see the smoke from the altar of incense rising up. When in the Old Testament, the Israelites offered a sacrifice, they didn't believe the sacrifice had been accepted until it had been burned up and it had gone upward from Elijah on Mount Carmel to Gideon to Samson's parents. If you go back and look at how they knew God was listening, when the, when the fire took it up, when the drift was up, they would say God was listening. And the priest, every time he would walk in the room, would be remembered, think up, think up, think up. Fix your mind not on things on earth, Scripture says in the New Testament, but on things above. In Revelation chapter 8, we're given a picture of kind of how Old Testament tradition and New Testament Christianity come together. And John said, the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. There's this thought that the life of the Christian should continually, the the focus of the Christian should continually be moving towards God. How am I supposed to act here, God? How am I supposed to react here, God? How am I supposed to go through this struggle, God? That the Christian's thought is always to be drifting up towards God, not just on the things of the earth. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Paul said it this way, just pray without without ceasing. 
But sometimes we think of prayer as our eyes closed and on our knees, and we do that in church, or we do that in private. Paul simplified it in Colossians 3, 1 and 2, when he said, if you're raised with Christ, seek things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. The thought of the high priest as he watched that smoke drift up is my life, my focus, my spiritual attention needs to always be up. Not on things around me, not on things behind me, not on things ahead of me that I can't control, but it needs to be drifting up towards God who is the only constant in my life. And as we look at our sermon notes, we see if we can think more about Jesus and less about ourself, we can live with a continual, what I call, drift towards God. If we can get out of suffering about our past and we can begin to drift up towards God, we can be changed. If we can get out of worrying so much about our long-term future and we can drift up and live towards God. If we can get out of looking around us and just trying to live through the relational conflict of our life and we can drift up. Jesus says in Matthew six thirty three, seek me first. Live with the continual drift up. Think God first and everything else falls in place. That's what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2.20. He said, I've been crucified with Christ and I don't, even, I don't live anymore. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Paul said, I've quit thinking about my future. I've quit thinking about my past. Philippians 3 is that great passage. He said, all I think about now is my eternity. I think about my God. I think about my spiritual life and it changes everything. The mission statement of our church that we give every weekend at church is we want to see people who are far from God become passionate Christians who make a difference in the world. But that's kind of a group statement. The reality of our mission statement is it's personal. It's personalized to you. The reality of our mission statement for you is our church exists so you will be close to God. Our church exists so you will become a passionate Christian. Our church exists so that you will make a difference in the world. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, focusing on these truths, and again, speaking in the terms of the tabernacle, Peter says, listen, the veil has been torn, the access is open, so we need to go get close to God. He says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All of us, not just the priest. We all now have become priests and we can go approach God. But you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and God's special possession. Why? So that you can declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Peter said, God has done all of this in your life so you can be close to God and by being close to God, so you can help others be close to God. There's no greater focus that our church could have the next six days than like Diane Harder trying to find people to bring to church on Easter Sunday. There's no greater prayer that could be offered by anyone in our church in the next six days than to pray that somebody who really needs a touch from God in their life would come to church this Sunday. And I have seen with my own eyes in the last 48 hours the influence of what happens when someone cares enough to get someone who doesn't know God to a place where they can hear about God and at least make up their own mind. Thursday night late, I flew into Indianapolis with our kids pastor, Jason Cummings. We landed a little bit after midnight. And then Friday, we drove to Connersville, Indiana, which is between Indianapolis and Cincinnati. And that afternoon, I spoke at Connorsville High School, a, a public high school. I spoke in their assembly, 1,200 high school kids, 9th through 12th grade. 
and I talked about choices and character and legacy. I wasn't allowed to mention the Bible. I wasn't allowed to mention God. I wasn't allowed to say Jesus. I wasn't allowed to pray. I wasn't allowed to say a Bible verse. But they allowed me to get up and talk about making good choices, how that would develop your character. Your character would determine your legacy. And then to invite them that evening to a youth rally where I knew I was going to be telling them about God and about Jesus and giving them an opportunity to respond. And this little town of 15,000 people, 1,500 teenagers, 10% of the town, showed up that night for that youth rally in this 5,000-seat basketball auditorium that had a stage set up. They had a, a trampoline dunk team come in, and they had a band come in. They gave away 500 pounds of pizza, flat-screen TVs, uh, recliners. I mean, it, it was just a madhouse for two hours. And then after two hours of getting these kids riled up with anything and everything you could imagine, they said, we're going to hand you the microphone. You just go introduce yourself and tell them about Jesus. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. So I'm standing on the foul line of this massive arena and as high as you can see, and it was dark, I couldn't even see the top row and all the way to my periphery, these 1,500 kids were spread out. And they told me eight out of 10 of these kids have never been to church anywhere. And they said, no, by the way, no one has ever got their attention and got them to be quiet. So just do your best you can. It was the most difficult environment I've ever had to communicate in in my life. And I literally, 10 minutes into my message, I just, I thought no one is listening. I mean, just, people were talking, there were so many people and it was such a large environment and they were not used to someone preaching to them that I just said, guys, let's just stop and pray. Let's just stop and pray. And everybody got quiet and they bowed their heads. And I thought, all right, Lord, here we go. And as simply as I knew how, I told them that God loved them, that he sent his son Jesus to die for their sins because their lives were not good enough to be connected to God, but he had figured that out for them. And like that event that was free to them was not really free. Someone else had paid for it. Salvation was offered for them. Salvation was free to them. It wasn't free. Jesus paid for it, but they could have it. And that if they hadn't heard it before, and if maybe they didn't think their parents loved them or they didn't think their friends loved them, they need to know that God loved them that Jesus died for them, that God wanted to have a relationship with them, and just the exact way that they were, God would accept them, and through his spirit, slowly mold them into what he wanted them to become. And I said it about that quick. And I said, now, if you heard that and you want that, and you've never done that, and before tonight you didn't think God loved you or you were good enough for God, then tonight I want you to accept God by faith and begin a relationship with him. And I said, let's pray. And we prayed a prayer. I said, if you don't know how to pray, just repeat after me. And I, man, my mouth was dry. I was sweating like crazy. I was so nervous because I just thought this isn't working. And I got to the end and I said, if you just committed your life to God and want a relationship with him right now, raise your hand. Hundreds of hands shot up across the place. And I thought, all right, Lord. And I said, if you're really serious, stand up on your feet right now. And hundreds of people stood up. I said, if you're standing, look at me. And they all opened their eyes. And I said, if you're serious, you leave your feet and come down to this gym floor and stand with me. We're going to pray, and we're going to figure out how this commitment works together. And hundreds and hundreds of kids came forward. 270 students marked on a decision card their name that they had prayed to receive Jesus, and they wanted a relationship with God that night. 80% of those asked where they had attended church. Where, where, where is your home church? 80%, 8 out of 10 said, I don't have one. Now, that didn't happen because of my message. It was the worst message I've ever given in my life, and no one listened. <laughs> that didn't happen because I just gave a free gift that didn't cost anything or didn't call them to commitment. 
That happened because somebody in that town cared enough to figure out how to get people to a place where they could hear about Jesus. And they, didn't, they couldn't make the decision for them, but if they could get them to a place where they could hear about Jesus, they knew that some would decide yes. And as a church, as we think about this altar of incense, as we think about standing on the threshold of the presence of God and our lives being the closest thing that people can get to the presence of God, man, we have to, like Diane Harder, take advantage of this week, take advantage of these little cards we've passed out, take advantage of text messaging and Facebook and Twitter. We have to this week take advantage of relationships with neighbors and friends, and we have to attempt to bring everyone we know to church next Sunday so we can say the veil has been torn, the door is unlocked, your access to God is open and available if you want it. But you have to choose. And then we leave it up to God. But I beg you this week, do your part in helping someone know who Jesus is because it could be a radically life-changing week in someone's life if you would reach out and attempt to make a difference because you can, you're important to God, you're useful to God. And if we'll all own that and go try to live thinking up not out, not behind, not around, but up. We know God wants us to do this. I believe we can have real impact in people's life this Easter season. Let's pray together.